sharing huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain soaked Lords. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time of Lawrence Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. How's it? How we doing, folks? Welcome back. It's Andrew Needling, and I'll be your host. This is Moving the Needle podcast. Hey, if you're new to the show, thanks so much for downloading this one. I hope you enjoy it. I've been getting some good questions sent in. And remember, if you want a question answered on the podcast, we're looking at do a pretty much a Q&A. Send me your questions. You can direct message me on Instagram, Facebook, wherever you can find me. And uh, let's have some fun with it. All right, folks, I'm excited to bring you the 2017 Junior World Champ. And he's also our current and reigning World Cup champ. He's only 21 years of age, which is actually crazy to think. Reminds me of someone like Greg Minard when he won the title. None other than uh, Matt Walker. How are we doing? All good, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm honoured and uh, I know we've done quite a bit of riding back in the day and you've just finished off um, your your video documentary and, and a training camp in South Africa not too long ago. You uh, Are you miserable that you're missing out on the good South African weather? I am a bit, mate, yeah. I'm a bit jealous, to be honest. Um, I, had a, I had a great time. Obviously, I've been to South Africa in December, I think, for three years now. So, kind of get used to having that bit of winter sun and uh it's just like a really nice kickstart into my training for the year really so um but yeah now we got home obviously we had christmas and so that was nice kind of chilling out with the family and stuff so i didn't miss it too too much but now i think it just makes you realize how easy it is to train there i think that's the biggest like outstanding point for me is that you could you get up at six in the morning and you fly out of bed you know you put your shorts and your t-shirt on you go for a bike ride and I'm definitely missing that for sure. But uh, to be fair, the weather in the UK this last week has picked up a little bit. It's around 10 degrees now, so it's not not too bad. Sounds blazing hot, but you you missed the key, <laughs> yeah. you missed the key point though. You said t-shirt and and shorts, but you put lycra on when you're in South Africa, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. We uh, I train with the the Cannondale XC boys, so it's quite a lot of lycra involved. And um, yeah, it's a good time. I think people, especially like the downhill side, they kind of they shy away from it. But I, I got to say, I enjoy embracing the lycra, and you got to get out there. Do you think um, meeting those guys, Avancini and 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 the other guys on that team in Canada? Do you think you've picked up a little bit more professionalism just watching how dedicated and how serious they take it when they do train? Yeah, definitely. I think that was like the first time I went, uh, yeah, three years ago now. That was the biggest thing I I took away from it was that it's not a nine to five. I never I never treated my riding and my racing like that anyway. But just the legacy effect of coming away from that camp and and knowing how the not only the top cyclists but you know the, these guys are like some of the best athletes in the world. So. It's just learning more about what they do day to day and how they, not only how they train on the bike, but then how they recover, how they eat, just how they look after themselves in general and how dedicated they are. They don't think about anything else but being faster on a mountain bike 24-7. So for sure, that was a big thing that I took, that I learned from them guys and tried to 
incorporate into my own daily routine, into my own training. But it's not all doom and, doom and gloom. I have heard that even some of those guys would invite you over for, you know, gin and tonic or, or showed you that they switch off as well, you know, like they need a bit of balance. Yeah, totally. That's that's a big thing that surprised me, actually. The first, also like the first time I went away, I kind of expect them to be really regimented, like robots just would get up, they'll do five hours on the bike, come home and just be like a bit boring not have a lot of like personality and stuff and I'm not sure where that really came from but that's kind of just how I I guess how I pictured the sport and how there are athletes to be um but it wasn't like that at all like you know the guys are really really good guys and they're up for a laugh and you know they'll take a gin and tonic or have a glass of wine after a ride and yeah for sure it's all about balance I think this that's something you've got to across all sports you know I think it's really important to have balance I think if you if you put yourself if you just train and work really hard and don't have any fun then it's not healthy it's not sustainable is it for for if you're doing it year in year out you know no I was blown away I mean I've ridden with a lot of those guys and got to know them and even Nino I mean this was before the Olympics got uh, postponed Mm. we we were out riding and he was doing one-handers and whips and I was thinking I mean that's pretty cool. He's having fun on these training rides, even though it's an Olympic year. So, I think, yeah, yeah. I think, especially if you've, you know, a little bit more experienced, you've got to force yourself to have fun and and stay balanced. What is, what does something like that look to you? What What do you do to have fun or, you know, step away from the grind if it's if it's something you take so seriously and you do with your training, which we we definitely must dig into. What What is fun and like a balance away from it look like a big thing for me like um I've never been much of like a drinker never really enjoyed that so much I just don't think it's just not my thing really so like I like to ride my track bike I've got a just bought a motorbike after the so after the 2020 season I thought oh you know I'd like a new motorbike I need to I need to buy a little prize for myself. <laughs> and that was it was. You got a you got an on-road track bike for the listeners. Is that that your prize? Yeah, so I bought myself a Honda Fireblade. Um so I've not actually ridden it yet, but that's kind of what I like to do as like away from from the downer race. And I think it was lightly touched on by Dixie actually in the in the documentary that we made. <clears throat> but yeah, for me it's like I, it's just a nice little escape like I can go to a you know, there's loads of track days in the UK. There's probably, I don't know, between 150 and 200 track days a year throughout the summer. Like you could go and do a motorbike track day in the UK probably every other day. So um, there's lots of opportunity to go and ride, and it's just it's just nice for me. It's like I like going back to when I was young a little bit. Uh, my dad used to race when I was growing up, so I've always kind of wanted to. I always wanted to be a like a super bike racer when I was young and it never kind of worked out for one reason or another. And, um, so now I'm old enough to buy my own bike and do it. You know, I've got the van, I can just go and do a track day pretty much whenever. Um, it's, it's a nice little escape for me and do something different. It just gets me away from the, uh, from the day job a little bit. And although I'm kind of active and, uh, you know, for a full day, it's pretty tiring, but it, I, I, come away from it feeling pretty refreshed just uh 
focusing on something different. I think it's it's important. And um, is that something you're able to do with your dad now? Because now you've touched on that, that he, he was doing that when you were super young, right? That's kind of some of your start into motorcycles because of your dad. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's really cool, actually. Well, it's quite surreal, actually, to be honest. But yeah, me and dad, we ride together and we just like, so we'll be on the track. And I guess when I started a few years ago, he was kind of, I mean, he'd not race for I think he raced for 10, 15 years at a pretty good level. So I kind of just went out following him and just, it was quite, it was quite nice really because when we got into mountain bikes, he was, he also did a bit of downhill racing with me. And within a few years, I kind of overtook where he was and I couldn't really learn much from him in terms of like on the bike stuff. So it, it was nice to, to like be humbled by him and go to a sport that he is really good at and for him to teach me stuff I think it was just really cool and like we just get to spend more time together and you know when you when you're going around a track like as fast as you can and you're chasing the guy in front and it's your dad it's quite a weird experience but it's uh it's pretty cool I mean like the the thrill there's there's nothing like it so um to be able to share that with your dad is fucking pretty rad that is cool what um so he's still. Um, it sounds like he he's pretty shit hot, and he still smokes you. And and what sort of speeds <laughs> are we? What sort of speeds are we talking? Because I've never been on a track on a track bike, and it's still like a bucket list thing I want to do. But I'm kind of hesitant because it's I've watched it up close on pit lane, and it's scary. Yeah, it is pretty. It is pretty scary. Um, I mean, it depends on the track, ultimately with speed, but. I guess you probably touch about on a big like a thousand cc bike, maybe 130 on a straight. That's mile an hour for the listeners. So mile an hour, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's, a, that's never, a, over 200k never, an hour. Yeah, but you never really dip below like eight, 70 or 80, depending on the track. Obviously, like some have real tight hair. Really, you so you're always going over 60, 70 mile an hour. Yeah, yeah, and the bikes. Like the bikes these days, the modern like thousand cc sports bikes, they'll do like ninety mile an hour in first gear. Like they're <laughs> really? absolute missiles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's ridiculous. So, like the bike, the Fireblade I've just bought now, uh, it's about two hundred horsepower at the rear wheel. So to think, if you imagine a two hundred horsepower car, like it feels pretty quick, like quite nippy, and it might weigh a ton or twelve hundred kilo. And then a motorbike, I think it'll weigh about 175, 180 kilos, and it's 200 horsepower. It's just a rocket ship. We yeah, we drove it's an those rocket ship. Yeah, yeah, we drove those kind of like go karty buggy things, and they had 600 cc and a thousand, and they were obviously a little bit heavier because there were four wheels with a cage. But it was it was honestly like violent when we would when you start them. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's a lot to get used to. So is that something that's just super fun? Like when you pack up your bikes and you go into a track day to get you away from mountain bikes and the, the you know, mountain bikes are amazing. Don't get me wrong, but probably even even though you're young, you're doing it every day. So sometimes there's some level of boredom to it. But a track bike, I would assume you're just grinning ear to ear, trying to wanting to get on the track. Yeah. And- um 
uh, like another element is that when I'm on track bike, I've got so much to learn. Like I'll be riding and there'll be some like 13 year old kid on a little 400 CC bike and he'll come around the outside of me with his elbow on the floor. And it's like a, it's a nice humbling experience. I mean, of course, in mountain biking, I've got a lot to learn as well, but I'm, I've made it to a, to a high level and it's nice to be able to go and do something else that I enjoy and kind of go through that learning process again. It, um, it kind of takes me back to when I started racing down, really, and just moving up the ranks and, you know, just like going through that learning process and learning all the do's and don'ts and just that progression. I just enjoy that. And, um, you know, I'm looking forward to riding the track bike a bit more and, that you know, over the few years and just um, just looking forward to, to learning a new skill and getting faster and faster. I think when I started... I think it's the same for a lot of people that ride motorbikes. It's like, oh, I just want to get my knee down. That was like the first kind of uh, marker. So when I did that, it's just like, yeah, just gradually, you know, uh, ticking off different tracks and um, just trying to get faster and learning a new skill. I think it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, there's something about that uh, challenge and and going to the drawing board and and learning something. And I, I know what you mean. Once you get to a professional level you you definitely can make improvements but they're they're quite small and incremental yeah but maybe something like you going from not being able to touch your knee on the ground frustrated frustrated and then when it finally happens it's it's pretty amazing feeling i could imagine yeah yeah that's it and i i you tend to get that less and less on a daily basis riding mountain bikes so it's just nice to have that you know more often yeah, I can I can imagine. So it's your dad did ride downhill himself. That's what kind of spurred you into mountain biking and, and downhill. It's a family thing. Uh, yeah. So basically, dad was racing superbikes, and um, and at at one point in his career, he decided that he was going to start endurance racing. So obviously, the races were twenty minutes, well, fifteen twenty minutes, and then all of a sudden, he was spending half an hour, an hour. And then he'd do like three hour races with a teammate. So, you know, you do like half an hour stints at a time or something. But the bike time was going up and he was realizing in the first couple of races that he needed to be fitter. And his teammate at the time was riding mountain bikes to stay fit. So dad had like, he'd ridden BMXs when he was young and he was always been into like done trials and, and obviously ridden motorbikes. So he was, he was keen to kind of, to give it a go. So he had a he bought a mountain bike just off a mate, got got going on it, really enjoyed it. And I was kind of at the age where I had a little hardtail at home that was just kind of riding around the village on, you know, making jumps and digging corners and uh, watching videos on YouTube of all like mountain bikers. Um, and he said, "Oh, you should come out like on a Sunday, just come out for a ride, just on the local hill with with a group of his mates." So I did that and basically just just loved it and then i was riding a lot and then uh he got me a little a little giant trance like it was an extra small bike i'd never seen an extra small since to be honest um but it was a real real cool little thing and i used to you know it was like first full suspension bike and used to ride that everywhere every day just there's a couple of little woods by me little hills um they used to take me to and we just ride around just at the weekend kind of thing, really. And then, um, 
getting into downhill, there was a, a British national race about 15 minutes from my house. Um, and at that time, nationals were in a, I think it would have been 2011, and nationals in this country were pretty big, and all the top teams used to go to them, like Steve and Josh would be there, uh, the Athertons would be there, you know, Simmons, Joe Smith, a lot of like the local guys were on top teams, you know, like Simmons and Joe were on CRC at that point, I think. And um, yeah, so I went along, saw all the top riders and I, for the first time I was understanding that all you had to do was ride down or you could get on the uplift and you just ride down all, all day. So I thought, this is it. This is what I want to do. I don't, I can do all the fun bits of the mountain biking ride, but without doing the climbing. So that's what like drove me into trying, well, going to race down or start with. So that would have been like, I don't know, midway through 2011, probably. I'm not sure when the national was, but it probably would have been in the summer of 2011. And then my first race was this January 2012. So I got, I woke up on Christmas morning and there was a giant glory there. And um, and that was it. I just went from there, really. And, and Dad, Dad rode with me and did all the, the first few years. He was racing. So I just obviously started at a really low level, like doing mini downhill races. So that's like in this country where mini downhill races are like the tracks are a minute, a minute and a half long, not super technical. And it's really good for kids. Like low, the, the, the like juvenile and youth classes are really big there. Because it's just a nice, easy track. You can kind of ride it on any bike. Um, so I started on those tracks and then built up to like regional level stuff. Um, and he would just—he was just following me around, really. And he was riding with me at the races and stuff until I kind of got to know a few people and started riding with kids my own age and stuff. But it was really cool to, I guess, from that point, it, it turned into a family thing. And it was about the same time that dad was slowing down with the, superbike racing by then after i've been racing a couple of years he he kind of stopped doing that so much yeah you you're, you're actually uh, bringing up so many childhood memories for myself so i i appreciate you sharing that and i also went on weekends to ride with my dad and his friends and uh, the rest is kind of history and it it sounds like you've had similar upbringing and what I'm also hearing is, because you've had a very quick rise to the top. I mean, you became 2017 Junior World Champ and you only started racing in 2012. But it sounds yeah. like you did a lot of repetitions and you started, kind of started small and worked your way up doing these little races where they're only a minute long and you've got a lot of probably, a lot of practice runs. And I think a lot of the British guys do that. They've maybe not got the best tracks or the longest tracks, but they're doing them over and over and over and you're kind of getting that repetition in you. So it seems yeah. like you really did a lot of a lot of that, and I mean your rise to the top of the world is 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 really quick in my eyes, and people think it is quick, but if you think about probably how many races you did and the support you had, you had a lot of experience by the time you you went and raced those those junior world champ races. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, like I said, I started with mini downhill races that a minute, minute and a half long, and then moved on to regional level stuff, which is is a really nice step. The tracks are not like national level, but they're just a nice middle ground. Um, so then, yeah, I mean, there was probably six or seven of those regional races a year. Plus, you might do English champs or Welsh champs or 
you know, there's there's probably two or three championships in the UK to choose from at kind of regional level. Um, so you know, with with other other little races I wanted to do around that, and then uh, a big thing for me was uh, my parents had a had a motorhome, so we'd go out to the Alps. Um, I guess a similar time to when like the World Cup guys would be there uh, just in the summer, just to ride, and we just uh cruise about the Alps we usually dad would take usually like three weeks off work and then we we'd head out there do all different bike parks and stuff so like for a kid I was like 12 well 13 14 years old probably I was just riding every single day for three weeks and it, it I could tell my results from when I before I went away to after I went away there was a big step a, a big improvement I think that is kind of what kick-started the whole getting onto onto the development team with Madison and stuff because um, I think it was a twenty third it was a twenty thirteen season I was in juvenile which is I think that's for thirteen fourteen year olds and um, I'd kind of been doing okay like I was at national level I was on the podium most weeks but not really quick enough to win and I went away to the Alps uh, in the summer for three weeks as I said just rode every day and I made a big step with my riding and then when I come back I won national champs and then won the final national round as well and then uh, got an email from Will to say would you we know we're starting a development team would you be interested in joining and that's I mean the rest is history from there yeah and quite a quite a bit of history you've written so and talk to me about before we get to you know current present World Cup championship that you won and if it sunk in, but the junior world champs, which you were able to win, well, two things. Yeah. Some A lot of people don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you actually had an issue with your bike and a stiff link or something in your chain, and that was in Cairns where there's that long pedaling section at the end. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Was there thought that you were nowhere near the top of the field in that run? I mean, was that quite a surprise to win because you kind of thought you'd had an issue with your bike? Um, to start with, I thought I kind of put a lot of... Going through juniors, I had a really like tough battle with Finn Isles all the way through my junior career. And Worlds in 2017 was like my last chance because obviously Finn had won the world's in 2016 uh Val de Sol and I thought if I want to be junior world champion I've got to do it this year so I kind of put all my eggs in one basket and um did all the stuff I needed to do to feel prepared to go to that race to have my best chance at winning it because I wasn't really interested in coming second anymore I'd had a lot of um I'd had a lot of second places at World Cup, you know, second, third, um, but I only won. I won in Cairns in 2016 and then Fort William in 2017. So those are my only two wins at World Cup level. Um, so I, that was kind of my last chance to to win a world level race, I guess, at, at junior level. I guess I was confident going in because I'd won the previous year before. So I knew I was I could ride that track well. But honestly, like on my race run, I was... You know when you're not quite in the zone, like you're riding okay, but you're not quite fully focused and you're making little mistakes and stuff. And I remember like getting so far down and thinking, oh, I don't know if this is enough. I, f- I feel like I'm riding a bit ragged. I'm not riding as smooth as I usually would. And 
And then I got onto that me- the pedaling section. And to be fair, like if I've watched the footage back and I remember saying to myself, whatever you do, don't case the last jump. Because there's a quite a big triple onto the motorway. And it, I found it was quite hard to judge. You come in really fast sometimes and then kind of go too far, and land to flat or squash it, but then case the top. So I was trying to, my focus was to get that right and carry as much speed as I could onto the pedals. And then, um, anyway, I ended up casing the jump, pedaling, but then as I was shifting, the it was like shifting two gears and then skipping back. And uh, at that point, I was like, oh, I just don't, I don't think that's enough. That's not really gone how I wanted to. And I remember crossing the line, going into first, but obviously Finn was still up the hill at that point, so it didn't really matter to me. Like I knew that if anyone was going to beat me that day, it would have been Finn. So I remember just riding around in the finish arena, uh, finish arena, pulling over to Will and saying, look, I don't think that's enough, mate. And I was like, I was devastated already. Um, really? Because I'd had races in the past. Yeah, I'd had races in the past, like Val de Sol, I remember as a distinct one. I felt like I rode the wheels off it, like I couldn't have done any more. I, I rode as well as I possibly could. And I went to the lead by quite a big margin and Finn still beat me by like half a second or a second. I can't exactly remember now, but it was not very much. And and then I went to Cairns and didn't put a rundown I was happy with. And I was like, oh, it's not enough because I know at the level I was at, I had to give absolutely everything and to have a perfect run to to beat him on the day. And I didn't feel like I'd really done that. So I was thinking, oh, this is just going to be another case of, yeah, I'm sat in the hot seat and then he beats me again. Um, You'd become yeah, the, that... junior, the junior version of Steve Pete. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, but no, that day I, it didn't happen. So I was um, yeah, over the moon, over the moon. I mean, so many emotions at that point. It was like relief, a big part of it. So I was like so desperate to win. But then I felt like I hadn't really done enough but then I had done enough. it turns out I had done enough and it was just like a crazy 20 minutes of like emotional roller coaster I guess but uh, yeah really stoked to tick it off I think it's uh it's a cool one yeah no congrats on that there's there's only a few get to have that title and it's it's awesome that you didn't have your best stuff but you didn't give up anyway I think that's quite a big lesson you know like race runs yeah even at a world champs level Shows you how good you were riding there, how fit you were to maybe not have your total best stuff, but that just shows you can't give up. You're never going to always have perfect yeah. race runs. So that's quite a cool lesson to learn early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and what about, so we were chatting, remember we were in the, your um, accommodation here in Stellenbosch, and you were, so I want to commend you because you seem to have, you know, you've got a lot more maturity than, say, your years would dictate at 21. And you mentioned yeah. you've definitely realized you've been overconfident and, and what that can, well, the negative effect of that. Can you help me understand or the listeners, like what it was like to be overconfident and, and what you would kind of give advice on, you know? Yeah. So um, to give a bit of context, so it was 20, it would have been the 2019 season and um, I'd had a really good off season as usual. I kind of put, everything into it I ticked all the boxes and I felt like I was in really good shape you know like the numbers in the in the gym were good and I was feeling stronger than I'd ever felt on the bike and I just generally had a really good feeling and 
Um, Danny was obviously on the team and doing training camps with Danny and being able to just little things like being able to ride with him all day and feeling comfortable at that speed. It just for a young gun, it gives you confidence that, okay, this guy's the top of the sport. And if I can ride with him and my times are competitive, then there's no reason why I can't do the same at a world cup. So I was gradually getting more and more confident throughout the winter. And then with that confidence, my riding was getting better and better. And I was making really nice steps. Um, and then we went to the first national, which uh, are quite a lot of guys go to in this country. So it was quite a good field. And I won the national. And, you know, I beat like G and, and Danny and, you know, some big British names. So I was obviously my confidence gets got a boost from that point. And people have always said, try not to take confidence from the results and take it from the process, you know. But it's difficult, and especially when you're young, when you're beating big names, you're just like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm invincible. Here. Like, no one can touch me. And that's kind of how I felt, just super, super confident. And I went to the IXS at Maribor. It was the week before the World Cup. And um, just a similar story, really. I just It was like copy and paste from the national. I just got up to speed, learned the lines, put a race run in. I managed to win the race. And... Um, and then from there, I'm thinking, well, I mean, I've, I've, I've just beaten some big names and we've got a World Cup on pretty much the same track next week. So there's no reason why I can't be fighting right, right up there. And my goals before the season was like, right, I'd like to get a few top 10s this year and, you know, be top 15 overall. And then all of a sudden, I've done a couple of races and I'm thinking, you know, I could be close to winning one or be on the podium. Um, so my confidence is like through the roof and, and with that, my riding got, I was riding with people say like, you should ride with intent and confidence, which is true, but I was almost riding like above my ceiling, above my limit and thinking that it's okay. And thinking that I'm invincible and I'm not, I'm not going to crash cause I'm just confident. I know what I'm doing and then just go in like too fast, too early and all the rest of it. Anyway, so I raced the World Cup at Maribor. I had a really good race. So I was fifth, and that was my first podium. And then this just fueled the fire. Like, I just was really overconfident by this point. To, but for, at the time, I didn't think I was overconfident. I just thought, oh, this is what feeling good is. Like, this is what, you know, people always say, you know, you get into this zone where all of a sudden you can just tick top results off. And I thought that's what it was. So I was like, yeah, this is cool. I'll just kind of ride the wave. <clears throat> and um, and then I went to Fort William and it was a national. And I was like, you know, there's obviously a few guys that go to that race. And, it, you know, it's quite an important one for, for the World Cup, with, you know, within a few weeks. So I thought, right, this is another opportunity to get myself at the front and, and let people know what I'm about kind of thing. And I remember I got up to speed and then just on the Saturday, just riding way like too fast and aggressive and stuff and then had this massive crash and um and that kind of really put me back up it was a bit it was like well I mean even looking back it was the it was the gnarliest thing I'd ever <clears throat> had to experience in in my life really because I so I had this big crash and basically where the track at Fort William comes from like the open section into the trees 
it'd been a little bit damp in the morning. So there was a couple of ruts on the way in and I just come in way too fast and I'd got a bit cross rutted and the, it just sent the bike a bit sideways and I went to dab, but there was a tree. I was basically heading towards a tree. So I bailed off the bike to, to try and miss the tree. And I basically just landed right at the bottom of a tree, like on my side. And it just knocked the wind straight out of me. And I remember crawling around on the floor, <clears throat> like trying to breathe. And I remember thinking, usually like when you get winded, I cut like two, three, four breaths and a li- you get a little bit of air in and then a little bit more and then you kind of start to recover. But I remember just being like heaving on the floor, couldn't get any air in and then just panicking. And then the next thing I remember was I was on my back and I opened my eyes and I was still in the wood and I was like, I'd f- literally felt like um, I'd been asleep all night and I'd, it basically what had happened was I'd uh, basically knocked the wind out of me so hard that I, d- I couldn't breathe, couldn't get any air in and obviously your heart's like, I've just been riding so my heart's like 170s or something so I'm desperate for air anyway, couldn't get any air in and then starved my brain of oxygen and my body just passed out so it's the, I'd never been knocked unconscious until until that point. So I'd never I'd never blacked out. Um, so yeah, I remember just waking up and I'm looking up like at the trees and thinking, why am I still in the wood? Like this is really bad. What? And then panicking, thinking like, what's happened? Why am I still here? I could remember having the crash and stuff because I I hadn't hit my head. Um, I remember I'd had a crash, but I was like, oh, this must be really bad because I've, I'm still here, kind of thing. And I literally felt like I'd been asleep for all night um so then it was just quite a traumatic experience you know like there was loads of people huddled around around me and then I was put on a stretcher in the back of the ambulance and just all that kind of palaver really that comes with having a big crash and it was the first time I'd kind of been through that and it just knocked me it just knocked my confidence and um I remember getting home and I did loads of physio stuff and like the injuries post like from the from the crash itself was not too bad like they were saying like it's very likely that you've broken ribs or cracked ribs uh, because I'd landed on my side but I was I was uh concerned for like my shoulder blade because I my literally when I was on the floor it felt like I'd broken my shoulder blade it was like I was in a lot of pain with my back so I had uh, like a full x-ray on my spine and everything and it all seemed pretty good there was like a there was one vertebrae in my back that was like crushed like a wedge shape. But they said, we can't really tell if that's happened now or it's an old injury. Have you ever like hurt, like broken your back before? And I said, no, never had the back injury. But they couldn't tell. It kind of looked like it was an old fracture or they they couldn't really just say 100% when I'd done it. Um, there's always <clears throat> a chance it, I've been like that from birth. So anyway, it was never really decided what I'd done uh in terms of fractures because they said if we ex you know we can't do anything for a broken rib anyway so it doesn't matter if you've got five broken ribs we can't do anything for you anyway so there's no point having an x-ray so that was that so I moved on moved on from that did just did physio stuff um and then I raced the world cup after I think it was four weeks and literally I remember getting on the so I took an overnight train up to the world cup 
remember like getting on the train thinking I don't know if I can ride like literally from from the minute the crash happened within a couple of days I was really struggling to walk I couldn't I couldn't sleep in bed I was like sat on the sofa trying to sleep at night I was just in I was in hell of a mess and then I tried to ride the downhill bike after maybe three weeks and I was in so much pain I couldn't ride so I was basically every single day I was getting that little bit better and then I managed to get to the World Cup and kind of grip my teeth type of thing and get through the weekend. So I think that was, it was really good at, at that time because I, I'd basically, all I'd been focusing on was getting back to race, getting back to race, getting back to race, got to Fort William again, kind of conquered that mental barrier of, oh, this is the track that I hurt myself on. And to deliver a good result, like I was in the top 10, I think I was seventh. So it's still like a, a real good result. But then I think from that point, it was like, right, next week you've got to go to Leo Gang. Or Monday you're going to Leo Gang. And I, and I think mentally I was just so tired from getting, trying to get over this injury and getting back on the bike. I'd put everything into it and I was just tired from from all the physio stuff and then gritting my teeth through the weekend. It was just take, you know, I, I was hitting compressions and like it was knocking the wind out of me because the pain was like sharp and um so I rode I rode Leo Gang and I think I got 13th or something and I was pretty happy with that because I'd not been a super big fan of uh, Leo Gang in the past so I was quite happy with that you know I was still up there in the overall I think I was like six or seventh in the overall so I was still way above where I expected to be uh, but then I, I come home and had a little bit of time, and I think that's when it kind of sunk in really, and when uh, when I noticed like my lack of my lack of confidence really. And um, is that so? Just is that something you think like it's good that happened to you so young to realize that you could have maybe avoided that if you were more experienced and and not so cocky in the morning of training, and and something you've built on into your process now. Yeah, totally. I think it's um it's a really good lesson to learn and it it was a tough one at the time like you know, I remember getting to the end of the 2019 season and just feeling like right if it, like I'd had a run of really bad results and uh, to a point where I felt like I was actually riding okay but then the results were never there and I'd I'd never really experienced that before. I'd always kind of, if I got to the bottom of a race run and felt like, yeah, that was a good run, I was happy with that, then the result would kind of be where I wanted to be, whether that was first or fifth or 20th, you know, uh, uh, when I go into elite. If I generally, if I had a good feeling on the bike when I was on the race run, then the result would kind of reflect that. And that was the first time in my career where, I felt like I was riding okay and the result was nowhere near and um, I, it just got me down you know after a few bad results I was really struggling to trying to kind of see the positives because I was trying to turn up to every race and be positive and right right this is the weekend I'm going to turn it around you know I'm going to go through my process and it's going to be better this week and it just wasn't getting any better and I think Will and and Dixie could see that it was it was, you know, I was having a really tough time and for, and what was happening was I was going home and being like super motivated to, to train and kind of get the monkey off my back kind of thing and turn it around. 
I was like putting everything into my training at home, coming to a World Cup and then having a bad result again. And it was just demoralizing and draining. And like by the 29th, at the end of the season, I was like, you know, within the space of eight months, I'd gone from, oh my God, I can win one of these. Like, I actually believe I can win one now. Like I've always wanted to win one, but now I, I know it's possible. And I'd gone from that mindset to, God, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Like if it's going to be like this, I don't know why I'm doing this to myself. Like, this is terrible. You had those thoughts at the end of 2019. Yeah, like, not to the point where I would ever have made a decision like, oh, no, I'm def- I'm not going to race anymore because I knew I was just in a bad spot and I was going to overcome it. But, you know, in those in the darkest moments, you do think, why am I doing this to myself? Like, I could have a much easier time doing something else, but... But then, so so going into 2020 or into the off season of 2020, that was kind of my mindset was, right, I need a break from this. I need four weeks of not thinking about bike racing, not riding my downhill bike, not mountain biking, just doing something else completely, just having a nice, like a total refresh, really. Um, so that's what I did. And then I went into 2020, like into the off season for 2020 thinking, right, this is my opportunity now to turn it around. Um, and that was my motivation going into the, into the season, really. Yeah, I think it's in some weird way probably really beneficial that it was a delayed season to get more time to reset. And then would you say being younger and, and, and hungry really helped? Because you've been quoted to say you almost got three years of work in the delayed off-season of 2020. And I think some of the older guys, and I probably would have done done it myself, someone like Greg hasn't been home much in his whole racing career, so probably really embraced taking some time off and did a bit of training and maintenance. But for him to be switched on for that whole delayed off-season, I don't think he could have. But it seems like you and Dixie, your, your long-time trainer, really put a big plan together to make the most of it. Yeah, totally. I think um obviously with the mindset that I was that I was going to turn it around, obviously having a delayed season, I was disappointed because I felt like by like March time, I was over the worst of it and I was definitely feeling a lot better on the bike and <clears throat> a lot more positive in my mindset and um I've been doing a, a bit of work with a sports psychologist and she's really helped and in that in those at those moments it was a, a huge help to me so that really helped turn things around and um yeah I was putting in a lot of work and I knew that there's no reason why I can't I can't be that guy again you know that's on the podium and and be chasing the top you know the top guys in the sport and kind of competing at that level so once I kind of got over that and had a little bit of time away I was into training and and yeah then we got obviously the news that the races were being cancelled. So that was a uh, really disappointing at the time. But then, I mean, the way I saw it was, okay, the job description doesn't change overnight. Like, although there's no races to go to, there's no reason why I can't train for the next race. There's going to be a race in the future. So why not get myself in even better shape than I'm in now? And then, um, you know, even, you know, just, use this time as, as, as wisely as I can, because I, I kind of knew that, okay, within a few months, 
people are going to step off the gas. And just speaking to other riders, um, you know, they were like, well, I don't really know what I'm training for. Like, I'm, I'm still training or I'm still riding, but I don't really know what I'm training for. And, and that gives me extra confidence to think, right, people are on the back foot here. They don't really know. They don't really have a plan in place for this kind of thing. So that gave me a little bit of a boost to say, right, if you just keep your head down here, keep out of trouble, keep doing your work, then, like you said, you can do almost three times, well, it turned out to be nearly three times the amount of work that you'd usually do in an off-season because we had most of the summer at home. And it, for sure, it was really nice to be at home. Like, um, my birthday's in, in May, so it was nice to spend my birthday at home and, like, chilling out with my family and stuff um, for a bit of a change. But, but yeah, like, I all, I was so focused. And, like, I think I had that extra bit of motivation as well because I'd left my racing in a bit of a bad way and I wanted to come out and, and show people that that wasn't me. Like I was going through a bit of a rough time and that, that wasn't an accurate representation of, of the rider I am. So I had that, you know, extra, like, uh, yeah, that extra motivation really to, um, to train and stuff. So, so yeah, we, we put loads of work in and then, um, went out to Leo gang for the first race. Well, mate, it certainly paid off. So congrats again. And now we jump to the present. Has it finally sunk in that, that you're going to be calling yourself a World Cup champion, you know, for forever? You're only the fourth British rider to do so. Um, it's quite, yeah. quite the yeah. accolade that you'll always have, whether people talk of it as a delayed season, a shortened one. You stood up, did the work, and it, and it paid off. Yeah, that's it. And I think, to be honest... Like, it's when people say those kind of things, like, oh, you're only the fourth ever, ever Brit to do it, and all those kind of things. That's when it really sinks in for me. When I think, you know, when you really start to believe it. When, uh, when I came home after winning the overall, I thought, well, actually, before that, I thought, oh, if you ever win a, an overall, that's going to change your life, and it's just going to be so different from then. But it's not really the case. Like, I literally got home. I was with my family still. You know, nothing really changed for me apart from I'd won an overall. And um, and personally, I mean, it's amazing. It's like something that growing up, well, watching the sport, I guess, and getting into it, that's what all my my idols were doing you know my idols were the guys that were chasing the wins every week and i remember the first year i properly like followed downhill was when the year when g and greg were like battling for the overall <clears throat> and g was like a local guy um so obviously like i was backing him and it was they're like at that point when i was just watching them as a kid they were like superheroes and then to put my, you know, I, I, you think of these guys as like untouchable, like you can't speak to them, you can't, whatever. They're just like, they're stupid, they're like superhuman beings and they're, you put them up on this pedestal. And then for myself, when I've gone up the ranks through the years and, and managed to achieve that, it was really surreal because I would never put myself on that pedestal. Um, 
I would never think of myself as, oh, super, you know, I'm superhuman and this and that and the other. It's just, um, it's just hard work and dedication that gets you there, really. And that's the biggest lesson for me was like, I guess I had a, a little taste of that when I first moved to Elite because also I was racing people like Greg and G and, and Danny and people that I'd looked up to over the years. And all of a sudden I was racing against them. So that was like a bit of a mental shift. But then to actually, you know, beat them all. And even when I look back and see like the overall standings list and there's like my name and then Bruni and then Minar and then like Gwyn's in there, Danny's in there, Troy's in there. It doesn't, it, it, it still doesn't really seem right because I, I look at these people as like, these are the best bike riders in the world. And then it's like little old me at the top. That's still what it feels like. I don't feel like I've filled the boots. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, well, maybe because you're only 21. It, it's going to be yeah, tough, yeah. tough. It's not like you've got years of of being at the top with these guys. And uh, it's awesome to hear you speak to to all this stuff and that you idolize these people, but they're just everyday people and you still got to go home yeah. and do the dishes and do the laundry even though you're a world cup champ but your mindset yeah. impresses me like the maturity you were able to show and obviously to withstand that pressure did i mean where does yeah. that come from have you looked up to older athletes other sports i mean where does it come from because you were good verbally with your um you know your interviews i could hear you were just sticking to the process and not you know just trying to make it just another downhill race but when you have that leader's jersey and it's that yeah. last race and you've got a do a good run. I mean, there's you can say whatever you want to the people interviewing you, but what about inside? What was the self-talk like to keep the pressure off, even though you know there I mean, there was obviously a ton of pressure. Yeah, I think the biggest thing was going into 2020. So obviously once I'd done a few races and I was confident and I knew, okay, the results are there. Like say Maribor, I went to time training. I never really do time training. Well, I hadn't done time training a lot in the past. And I thought, right, no, I'm feeling good on the bike. I know where the track goes. Let's have a go. And uh, I think I, I was second in time training. So that was like, all right, okay, this is really good. And then I qualified third or fourth maybe, finished the first race, and I was up there. And, and it was at that point where I thought, right, 12 months ago, I, this would have, this like bunch of results would have run away from me and I would have got overconfident and we all know where that end, like that, where that got me. So it was a big lesson for me to be like, right, okay, I know I'm riding well. I know I have the speed. I've got the fitness and the strength. I know I can deliver them results with my riding how it is now. Don't push it. Just get on the bike every morning. Just ride down the hill and see where you end up. And that's what I did every, and that's why I was forcing into myself every morning. I get up and say, right. To, yesterday was a real good day you know i was on the podium again or i was in the top five i mean that's mega but today's a new day don't let yesterday affect what you're doing today just follow your process and ride down the hill again and that's just what i forced into myself every single day when i was racing and and you know going through qualifying and practice days and whatever and uh, it was really working for me and it just meant that i could be i wasn't letting my riding or the results run away with me. I was just being consistent and I could just knock out consistent third, fourth, second, third, fourth, whatever it needed to be. And I didn't feel like I was ever above my ceiling. 
like in previous years, I'd been absolutely on the limit. You know, like the bike is out of shape. It's not feeling that great. Like I'm hanging, like my head's on the stem because I'm not quite got the shape. And I'd scrape a top 10. Whereas I guess I put a lot of work in and I was in much better shape and I'd really dedicated a lot of time to bike setup and all the rest of it and all these little things you need to do to get yourself in a good place. Um, it just allowed me to go, right, I'll knock out another run and another run and another run. So when it came to that, um, that final race, when I'd taken over the leader's jersey and, you know, even with the rain that was coming down and stuff, just to add a little bit more flavor into the mix, um, you know, I got, I basically, I, at that point, I thought, well, you know, this could be anyone's now because of the rain, especially. But go, you know, I had to remind myself that going into the year, I wanted to be a top 10 rider and get a couple of podiums throughout the year. And now I'm stood here with a leader's jersey on, about to drop into my final, like the final run of the year. And I'm first in the overall and I've not been out of the top five all year in like time training, qualifying and races. So I'm way, way, way surpassed what I ever thought I could achieve that year. And I always think of myself as setting very realistic goals because I like to be able to get to the end of the year. And if all goes well, to be able to achieve them because it's just a nice feeling to be able to achieve your goals. So I thought that was obviously a realistic goal for me to be top 10 overall and a couple of podiums. So as I said, I'm literally stood there with the leader's jersey on thinking I've got nothing to lose because I understand I'm 21 years old and hopefully, fingers crossed, I'm going to have a lot more opportunities. Well, a lot, yeah, a lot more opportunities to win a world title throughout my career. So I didn't feel like it was a last chance saloon. I didn't feel like I needed to change anything. I just needed to keep myself calm, keep myself laughing and joking with the lads. Roll into the start gate, drop in and just do what I do every, what I'd been doing all year because I knew I had facts that that worked for me. So there was no reason for me to change anything. I'd just roll in, uh, set, you know, listen to the beeps and then just hit it. And that's all, that's all I did. Just try and simplify it as much as possible. No, that's fascinating to hear, Matt. And, and I kind of feel like the rain spiced it up so much, but maybe it even helped you add to that realization of, hey, well, it's going to be anyone's. You know, yeah. maybe the pressure's even off. Like, shucks, maybe none of us are going to get this if this rain carries on. So it's not like it's not like the world was on your shoulders with a dry run, you going off last, like it's yours to lose. It was kind of like, Shh, this might be out of my control anyway. Yeah, and it was like, even though I had the leader's jersey, I never felt like it was mine to lose. I felt like it was mine to win. Like, awesome. It's that's still a, that's a great at, nugget still, for the fans at home. That's cool. <laughs> it's, still a, it's still anyone's at that point, isn't it? You know, it's not signed, sealed, delivered. I've not got a massive championship lead or anything. It's super, super close. I'm wearing it, but I've still, you know, the championship's not over. So it, it's, as, it's as much mine to win as everyone else's. Um so, yeah, it was just, uh, I say it was like, it was, it was a bit of a whirlwind, obviously, but it was very calculated in what I was doing. And I learned a lot of lessons from 
2019 and how it can all go wrong to kind of having this huge reversal and and it, it's taught me so much you know it's taught me how overconfidence can really have a negative effect on your riding and how how much hard work and discipline actually makes a difference you know like a lot I've spoke well not spoke to but I've listened to a lot of successful people in different sports and Every, you know people often ask oh what's the secret like what have you done differently and um there's no secret to hard work like you know there's lots of um you know this there's no secret basically is what i'm trying to say like hard work is just hard work and that's it people don't want to do it because it's hard yeah like it, and and also if you put 100 percent in and you don't achieve your goals you might feel like a failure but i think it's i think it's worse to not put the effort in i think it's better to give it your all and say you did whether you win or lose than to not try because you're scared of failure i mean that that to me is the more cowardly attempt but it's not for everyone because you put all that work in then you got even more pressure on your shoulders and that's that's a tough feeling to to manage but you've You've been lucky enough to be motivated from a young age and, and be around people and, and see that sacrifice and hard work in the right way can really pay off. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and like for me, for me, I felt like, especially into that going into that final run, I felt like there was there was no chances. It was either the what the guy the guy who was going to win it was going to be the guy that wanted it the most, and it was almost like if I ride how I've been riding the whole time, barring any huge mistakes or anything. Um, you know, I've put all this work in. What will be, will be. If it's not, if that's not enough this year, then it's not enough. We'll come back next year stronger and and then we go again. Um, yeah, man, I, I hope you can keep that attitude for the rest of it, um, even when you get older and more experienced, because you really can't control the outcome. You can only control yourself no. and the process. So you could have put exactly, down a storming yeah. run and Vergier could have gone faster. That's that's a fact. And if you're able to really yeah. absorb that and, and make that a reality, I mean, you really... It's tough, though, because you always think about the outcome or the times. And if you did too much of that, yeah. you wouldn't have been prepared. So some huge, huge nuggets there. Let's um, maybe get to a few more lighthearted things because I think a lot of people see how much you train. They see you serious as a youngster and you're not too out there on social media because you're so focused on your job and, and I respect that and, and I really think that's awesome. So we've got a few yeah. listener questions as well as I've done a little digging here. Uh, quick on. ones. Do you have any superstitions, maybe lucky underwear, I'm just asking for a friend or anything that maybe is weird and wacky? Or you're not really too superstitious? I don't think I'm that superstitious, to be honest. There's nothing really that I feel like I have to do. Um, no, to be honest, mate. I wish there was. I wish there was something because it would make this a bit more interesting. But no, there isn't anything. I like I don't have any underwear or any like socks that I wear. Or I know, like I spoke to people in the past, and some people put all like their you know they put their left sock on first and their left knee pad on first and all this kind of stuff but not really no i think there's obviously a few fundamental things in my process in terms of getting myself ready to for a race run you know like my warm-up and my energy you know i'll take an energy gel and i'll do all these little bits but i don't think that's superstition really that's just 
my process that I do. No, and I think some things can be called superstitions, but they're not. If you do your left first, it could be called a superstition. But if that's a way that you feel, okay, I've I've got ready for my race correctly, whether it's socks yeah. on first, then that knee pad, then the other one, then a shoe, that can become a routine, and routines are really calming. Unlike yeah. me, I uh, I once had a lucky pair of underwear, but obviously yeah. those they only last so long until you have a bad <laughs> race. So... It's just a stupid thing, but I was young. I also won a race, and uh, the late Monk Dog gave me a Mountain Dew because we were in America. And then I yeah, won, yeah. and I thought, right, I normally have Cokes before I go up, get a bit of caffeine. Not, I'm, I'm not saying that that's what riders should do. Some people get it from coffee. <laughs> and then I stupidly said, right, I'm buying a bunch of Mountain Dew, and I flew it over, and the next race was Fort William. So until... That six-pack of Mountain Dew ran out. I thought that was my pre-race drink. So <laughs> I was just having a bit of fun, trying to trying to help the confidence last. But we all know it, it comes from the process. So that's funny. Yeah, yeah. So we spoke a bit about your junior days, and you were super successful. And then I'm reaching out to Mark Beaumont, and he's like, I'm trying to think of things. But I, even when I tried to derail him, I couldn't get him to do it. But have – here's a quick <laughs> – Really? Yeah. Really? And I was like – you know you're right even when you try to derail the kids sometimes the youngsters you you just know they're going to do something stupid um, <laughs> but uh, there's a story behind the question have you ever had to outrun some cops on your downhill bike oh I at did, a training yeah. camp oh my god yeah we are, yeah all right so, fill, fill the listener in on that yeah, to give you a bit more context so basically, it was my first, this is my first ever training camp. So there's me, Slugger, Simmons is on the team, um, Will, we've got the chef there, and Dixie. Dixie's there doing like our program. And Dixie's brought this, uh, the PT, he's got a PT that he's, that he knows in Sheffield. So he's like, yeah, we'll bring this PT over and he'll do some gym stuff with you, um, just like activation stuff before you do your your sessions and stuff. And he was a real nice lad, but this this bloke Leroy, his name was, and he'd never been he'd never been out of Sheffield, I don't think. Like he was just a really super quiet lad, just really innocent. And basically, Slugger especially, like when you could see like the innocence in him, and it it was like feeding him to a pack of wolves. Like Slugger was just prodding him all week. And, uh, yeah, it, it was just, and like for me, it was like, I was really young. I was like 16 or 17 and, uh, it was my first training camp and it was just like quite a lot to take in. And, uh, anyway, so it, it was in Mijas in, in Spain near Malaga and we were riding at this downhill place and we'd got to the, I can't remember what the track's called for the life of me, but we got to the bottom of the hill and, um, there was a big chain across saying private land, you can't ride here, blah, blah. And, the lads, Simmons and Slugger, they were like, ah, whatever, we'll just go up the back. I know a back way into the into the top of the hill. So we'll just we'll drive the vans in from the back way. And then, you know, I'll pick you up at the bottom of the hill and we'll just shuttle it that way. Um so I was like, all right, no worries, these boys know what they're doing. Um I've literally like been abroad a few times, never really to ride my bike. So I'm like, yeah, whatever they say goes pretty much. So I'm just kind of a passenger. And Leroy already is like, oh, I don't know if we should be doing this, lads. You know, 
it set, looks a bit illegal to me, blah, blah. And he was already uncom- uncomfortable. And obviously Mark and, uh, and Slugger's giving him the beans because he's like, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. They're like, oh, whatever, Leroy, it's going to be fine. Just chill out. And then anyway, so we so we drive over the back of the mountain. We do a few. I think we literally did one or two runs and the cops turn up and uh, I spot them as um, as we make as we're like making the last section and they're sat at the bottom waiting for us. So obviously someone's called in to say these lads are uplifting at, at this private land, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Leroy stood at the bottom of the hill waiting for us and the cops turn up. So he. He just shits himself. <laughs> and, uh, so there's me, Simmons and Dixie, and we're just like, we've just stopped, like not quite at the bottom of the hill. And we're like, right, what do we do? We've got two vans at the top of the mountain and we need to basically get out of here. So Slugger was like, oh, well, I can't leave Leroy, so I'll go and have a word. And maybe Will was there as well. And we'll just kind of see what they want. Or they'll probably make us pay a fine or whatever. So then me... So basically me, Simmons and Dixie were like running up the hill away from these cops to get to the vans at the top of the hill. And we were like expecting them to to drive round and meet us at the other side. So we were like basically trying to beat them to the other side of the mountain. And I, so I was riding this downhill bike up the fire road, sweating, thinking I'm going to get arrested. Here. I'm going to get arrested. Like it was the first time I'd been away. So I was like, I don't know what happens if... Uh, if we get caught, am I going to have to spend... You think in your careers maybe at, at risk here? <laughs> getting yeah. Getting in jail. Oh, my God. Yeah, and Dixie, Dixie's sprinting up the fire road. Anyway, so um, so we get in the van. We ring Will and we say, oh, um, right, we're, we've, we've got the other van back. We're going to just head back to the house. Yeah, yeah, no problems. And uh, so basically, we never really found out what happened until later. But basically what had happened was, they turned up and Sim, uh, Slugger and uh, Will had had a conversation with with the cops and they said, oh, look, um, obviously you're not allowed to be here. It's illegal. We're going to have to fine you. But you'll have to fi-. And obviously they didn't have any money on them so or not enough. I don't know how much it was, but it was probably a few hundred uh, euros. So it was like, oh, you've got to come to the police station to to do to fill out, the, you know, to pay the fine or whatever. So they didn't want, so they said, oh, you've got to follow us to the police station. But obviously they didn't want us to just not, you know, follow for a little bit and then just turn off a road and just dart it across town and not pay the fine. So uh, they they said that someone's going to have to sit in the back of the police car. So Slugger straight away was like, oh, go on, Leroy, you could sit in the back of the police car. And he was white as a sheet. <laughs> and, they, and they put him in there. Yeah, they put him in there. Yes, yeah. so they put him in the back of the police car and took him to the police station. Basically, it was bait because <laughs> they didn't want us to just leave. You know, they didn't want they didn't want for their us fine to just money. leave Leroy. Yeah, so it was just so funny because he he had. Uh, I mean, he was such a nice chap, such a like gentle mate, like a gentle lad, and he'd um, he'd literally just come out on this training camp. And then one minute he's been arrested, taken in the police car to the police station. And then like one in like maybe a day, the day after or another day later, he nearly fell out of the uplift van because he was like leaning against the side door and it opened. And he was like, yeah, yeah. And he nearly fell out. I just had hell of a week. But and to be fair, I've not seen him since. (laughs) Well, I don't blame him. He was told to come on a chill downhill training camp and he's apparently almost went to jail. 
<laughs> nearly went to jail, nearly fell out of the van, yeah. Oh, brilliant. Uh, well, um, before I ask you maybe about expectations in the 2021 season, which also might be delayed, who knows? Uh, one more question I'm asking for a friend. Would yeah. you recommend cleaning turkeys for extra pocket money? Oh, my good God. Who's told you about this? Uh, I do my research. I got my sources. I'm connected. Yeah, so there's a bit of, a bit of a background story to this as well. So basically, um, I would have been junior at the time, and I was uh, – my missus has – well, my missus' family, they run a – they live on a farm, and they um, they do, like, geese and turkeys and chicken at Christmas time. It's, I mean, it's, it's a big operation. They have, like, 1,500 geese, and um, there's a lot of numbers. And uh, so that they basically – they do everything from killing the geese to plucking them to waxing them to, you know, boxing them up and sending them out. And they have a little shop, a little farm shop there as well. So it's really, really busy around Christmas time. And this particular year, I was like probably 17 or 18. I can't remember exactly, but I was traveling up and up to Sheffield every, every week to train with Dixie. And, you know, I was, uh, I was train. I was still, I was riding full time. And uh, Corinna, my missus, she was like, oh, uh, would you be able to help on the farm like just a few days next week? Because it's, um, you know, because we're really busy and, you know, we're a bit low on staff and all the rest of it. We could just do with someone like just weighing the birds or just packing them up. And I was like, "Okay, no worries. I'll do that. Anyway, so I was like handling this raw meat for like three days or something. And I got so ill. (laughs) So well, it was the like one of the some of the worst flu I've ever had, and, and like I'll say to her, so I went, to, I went to to Dixie. Was like, oh, you coming to Sheffield this week? And I rang him up, and I was like, mate, I've been in bed for two days. I feel horrific. Why? What have you been doing? And I was like, oh, well, I've been working on this poultry farm, and I've been handling raw meat for for days, and now I'm ill as hell. And he was just <laughs> he just himself laughing, and then they called me Turk for like. I don't know how long, but because Slugger was a wind-up, he started calling me to... I think we should bring that back. Yeah, that lasted for a few, a good few months anyway. That's what you get for fondling raw turkeys. Yeah, exactly. Raw birds. Bird yeah, flu. I, <laughs> bird flu, that's it, bird flu. Yeah, yeah, you no. gave yourself bird... Well, it was very gentlemanly of you to offer to help or to at least oblige your missus. I mean, that's good, but look what it got you. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I've not been back since. Anyway, I don't. I don't blame you. I just. I. I want none of that. No, but she's. She's adamant that it was nothing to do with the birds and nothing to do with handling raw meat. She just mm. thinks I got ill. Else, but don't know about I'm that. Not so convinced, to be honest. Me either. I'm gonna have to leave this last one out. We'll have a beer over the last one that Simmons sent me to ask. So. We'll just right brush on. over that one. Let's 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 jump more to the present slash the future. I have to ask, you know, um, yeah. what you know, what's going to be a motivating factor going into twenty twenty one? Is that to knock off that now elusive World Cup win? You know, like an individual win. Uh, is it going to be just telling you know what's the motivation and how you're going to manage say the expectations that say you might put on yourself or or other yeah. people. I mean, ultimately, like I've had obviously a really successful 2020 and um, I achieved, I far surpassed what I expected 
to or expect to achieve. Um, I never expect to win the overall. So I guess at, once you have a lot of success like that, your goals change. Um, but I think just the next the next step for me for for me would be to go. Obviously, we only had. I mean, we had four different races, but two different venues. So I think on a like this year when we go to a lot of different venues, obviously tracks we've all raced in the past, so um, that's all good. But I'd like to be in the top, like consistently in the top five, and to have another top five overall, I'd be really happy with. And then obviously, ultimately, I'm chasing the that elusive World Cup win now, which is pretty um, surreal to actually be saying, like after not really racing elite World Cups that long to be sat here and saying, yeah, I'm chasing a World Cup win now is, is I have to kind of pinch myself every time I say it. But um, that is the next um, clear goal, really. That's the most obvious, um, the next step to take, really, is to is to win a, to win a World Cup. And then, yeah, I guess just show consistency again and be up there, like I said, in the top five as much as possible. Um, over a variety of different tracks, and I'd be pretty happy with that. But yeah, for sure, looking to looking to win one and looking to um, to get the rainbow stripes as well. I mean, it's a pretty natural progression. You're going to have to change these goals. Are you someone that goal sets, writes them down? Uh, is it something you like? Of course, I want to improve, and you just do the process. Or would you have you know write them down on a piece of paper, a book, on your laptop? You, you ever write down, hey, goals for twenty twenty one or this, and then like bury it and look at it at the end of the year? Uh, not really. I think obviously I have a discussion with like Will and and Dixie, and we we know what we can achieve if if things go right and we put the work in. Um, so we all have a discussion and we're all on the same page and we all know where we're headed and what we're what we're looking for ultimately. But in terms of writing them down and stuff, not really. I'm I, I know I know what I want and what my goals are and I just work throughout the year and obviously sometimes, you know, like I could say, right, this in twenty twenty one I want to win a World Cup and there's every chance I could go to Maribor and win a World Cup first round and then you and then your goals have to change again so you know you have to reevaluate all the time and uh, that that also goes for when it goes the other way you know if you're having a really bad time you have a crash or whatever and you say right okay i need to reevaluate here it's maybe not possible for me right now because of injury because of uh mental uh, barriers or battles you're going through at that time to, to win a World Cup, so okay, I've got to, I've got to make different goals. I've got to be able to, I don't know, just like little goals and little little stuff to aim for. And I think for me, like that, I I set goals a lot throughout my training as well. Like um, a big one for me uh, the last year has been like uh, I want to run under twenty minutes for a five k, um, and just like little goals like that, just to keep me motivated and I'm not ultimately focused on uh the big end goal which is obviously winning a world cup in the summer um but it just keeps me interested and like uh switched on day to day in in achieving these little goals and it with achieving these little goals you build up a better uh you build up like a 
a more rounded athlete. And then when you when you apply yourself to downhill come March, April, and into the season, then you're in you're in good shape. Yeah, that's brilliant. I mean, you you're you're speaking to well, preaching to the choir here on process goals, incremental ones. And I think you see a lot of people get injured and then they stick to their original goal, say it was a podium. But if you're coming back from injury, you missed a race or two. It's not realistic. Yeah. You're just going to get down on yourself or like you mentioned, you ride a little bit over your head, you get another injury. So I think that's quite a mature lesson is set, you know, attainable incremental goals and start ticking them off. Because if you yeah. put a goal of, oh, I'm going to win a World Cup, well, how do you win a World Cup? I mean, you've got to go back to the basics. Okay, I've got to get my training foundation, my skill work, work on my mental, yeah. all those small little buckets. You've got to put them all together. And then exactly. you know maybe at the end exactly. of the season you you achieve those things. And uh, have you thought much about the feeling that you're going to have, say maybe having a target on your back? I mean that's something new to you. I mean life is about changes and constant change, and that's that's something different. There might be more of a target yep. on your back, and in previous years it was on the a, a Bruni or uh, a Marie or someone like that. Yeah, yeah. I think to be honest, like. There is obviously that element to it, but when you get to the first round, all the points are zeroed and everyone's on the level playing field. So, um, yeah, I won it the previous. I've won it the previous year, but I don't. I, to be honest, I don't think winning an overall is maybe you. You don't get that sense of like a reigning uh, champion as much as maybe you would if you'd won world champs. Because obviously, you have you know you have all white kit and the rainbow stripes and it's a constant reminder to people that I'm the world champion kind of thing. I think if you win an overall, you don't, you don't wear anything different or anything. I guess, um, do you even start the next season with a number one plate? I would certainly I hope know. so. But yeah, I think, I do. think that's I think a key, do. key point, isn't it? It's, it's a nice way to fly into the radar and, and, and yeah, that's, I mean, that's cool saying like the uh, points are zeroed at round one in 2021. They are, aren't you? Yeah, the, the pass yeah, is almost forgotten. It is almost. And you're only as good as your last race. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it does change things a little bit because obviously I think I am more in the attention of of other riders now and the media and stuff. And I noticed that a little bit towards the end of the year uh, last year is that you know, I was doing little interviews and stuff, which I'd never really done before. So that's the biggest change, really, is people want to know a little bit more about me and what uh, what makes me tick and how I achieve the results I do. Uh, so just a little bit more media attention and stuff is really the only difference um, that I've noticed. But, it, I mean, whether I've won the previous year or not, it won't change anything by the time I get to Maribor. I think I'll just... Because changing my mindset and thinking, oh, I've got to, you know, there's so much expectation now. If now I've won it once, I've got to win it all the time. Well, I've not won a race yet. So there's still loads of things to to chase. Uh, and I still feel like I'm, uh, I'm still a hunter. I don't feel like I'm the hunted, really. You know, because there's so much I've got to tick off. So, and I'm, I'm, I'm young, you know. Uh, so, yeah. That's where I'm at. I want to say thanks so much for your time and congrats on what was an awesome season. And, and it's so cool to see the hard work and you being humble in that, that victory as well. And I mean, 
listen to me, don't listen to me, but I don't, I don't think you should change. I think carry on doing you and uh, sticking to your guns, yeah. your training, your sacrifice. It's clearly paying off. And um, I wish you all the best for yeah, 2021 and beyond. And thanks so much for making the time and, and being open. And I think it's cool to see or hear some of these funny stories because you are a serious guy and you take your job and the sport seriously, but uh, there's also time for balance and having a good time. So thanks for sharing those good stories with us. Yeah, no problem. Anytime, anytime. I think that's like a, like you were saying, it's quite a big, like, uh, maybe not a misconception, but people think I'm super, super serious and uh, I'm so focused on the job, which, which I am. But then like, there's also another side to me, like a, Obviously, I go and ride trap bikes and have a laugh with my mates and stuff. And I think, like, without opening a complete can of worms, like, I think because I'm not the type of guy to to share the whole of my private life on social media and stuff, people almost have this attitude now that if it's not on social media, it didn't happen. Um, So for sure, it's it's, it's easy to get for people to get the perception that all I do is train and ride, which... There is a big part of that. Like I'm super serious on on my training and stuff, and I give a hundred percent. But I also, you know, it's re- really important to me to have a balance. And I've got to ride my motorbike, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do other things, you know. Um, but because I don't plaster it all over social media, then it's it's not seen, is it? So. Yeah, man. I I've I've enjoyed. We can have a if you come out to South Africa again, we'll definitely have a glass or two or four of wine and a good steak so uh yeah thanks for letting us in a little bit more it's not it's not easy because everyone judges and social media like you say that's a whole hour of a podcast you could you could talk about yeah yeah Yeah. um no i appreciate your time thanks so much for for making the time and, and spoiling us with some good stories and maturity beyond your years so thanks matt sweet dude thanks very much cheers for uh asking me on it's been a pleasure And one last thing before you guys go, if you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend. Make sure you subscribe. Leave us hopefully a five-star rating and review. I read all those reviews. It's awesome getting them. If you got any feedback, you want to send me a message, I get all those messages. I try to respond to them all. I really appreciate it. It's been a fun journey so far. So until the next one, stay well.